Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. Today's Lunch and Learn was about supply chains, although we really only got to security and the security aspect of supply chains because we have a very serious challenge. We have made software and onboarding software for development so easy and haven't put the same efforts in how production systems are hardened. So the team really talked about what it takes to build production systems that respect security, supply chains, dependency graphs, inclusion, and in a way that cross teams. Uh, it's an incredibly important topic and it is the foundation of any successful supply chain hardening effort. So take a look and listen on this. I am sure you will get a lot out of it. Uh, topic of the day, supply chain security. So this one comes up all the time and um, we've had some really good conversations about how you know what software you're getting. Um, and I think there's a whole bunch of things that we can mix and match into this. One is open source and does it provide you with some supply chain security for software? Uh, but when you look at that and you look at the software you're deploying, you know, is the upstream dependable? What happens with things that the software depends on? Um, you know, I can, I can think of some really concrete examples. Um, what happens with software that's on systems that you're embedding? Um, Ed, this comes up a lot in Edge. Um, and then just do you trust all of, you know, whatever you build, do you trust the pieces and parts that go into that? And can you? How do you know? Um, so there's, there's a lot of software supply chain um, challenges. I, I'm not even sure where to start pulling on this. It's all, it's all one sweater, but we, we have to pick a, a thread to start pulling on. Does anybody have a preference? Um, I, I mean, supply chain security in Kubernetes is uh, perhaps a, a, a good point, uh, especially because it is not very frequently discussed in many cases. Uh, you tend to look at supply chain security for your containers, supply chain security for your application library dependencies, but then you have help charts which pull or could pull arbitrary containers. You have your GitHub strategy, which could potentially just pull the latest version of your Helm chart. And suddenly people seem to be forgetting about all of this. And then the, and then the, so you got the Helm charts, and then you actually have the containers and whatever's composed in the containers, right? Or are you exactly. including those together? Well, kind of, yeah. So, I mean, Helm chart kind of has a provenance section that, that you can use to, to verify it, but it is based on, 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 on the old version of uh, GPG. It doesn't even work with GPG2. Uh, um, their uh, support for private Helm chart repositories is rather lacking at the moment. It's a little bit better with, uh, with their experimental oh, right. OCI repositories um, where, I mean, you, you can then use IAM authentication for Docker, but 
um, I mean, essentially, Helm chart repositories are expected to be just websites, and Helm itself only supports uh, limited authentication methods. Holy, wait, yeah, I, I had forgotten because I haven't been focused on Helm for a while. Helm is a community library system. So yeah, you can, you can specify just like, you know, hey, I need Helm chart foo, and it's going to go to the internet and download Helm chart foo, just like you can say, I need container bar, and it's going to download container bar from Docker Hub by default, um, assuming bar has paid their dues to Docker. <laughs> um, ay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you could have somebody who's literally just running whatever, doesn't even realize. Yeah, it's uh, uh, it's interesting. This is we've made it super easy, but in the super easy, we haven't also made it um, hard to get stuff. Mm -hmm. So, assuming, uh, goodness, it, it's. There's a, a lot, lot more than that goes into <laughs> even uh, when you start talking about corporations, DevOps practices, and uh, especially at the enterprise level where seemingly in the, the name of quote unquote DevOps, the organizations do things that they, they really shouldn't do, but uh, continue to, to leverage that for their cloud migrations. Mm -hmm. I suspect a lot of people just assume this is where, where the, the actual supply chain question comes in, right? Cortez, you're right. It's, if you're assuming that, hey, this is DevOps, I'm just Helm chart install, blah, assuming it's right, does that, that doesn't raise, do people even stop to raise flags on that? So the question is, who's going to raise the flag? This is what I've seen in, in several large organizations is the those that are doing, which is often the DevOps engineers, as they're termed, uh, right or wrong, uh, are the ones that are tasked with just go get it done. And a lot of them don't have a, a good grasp of security and, and ramifications. And you have the security teams that don't have a good grasp of Helm charts and Kubernetes and all these cloud native things. And so it's, it's who, who, who's informed enough to be able to raise that flag? Yeah, I, I mean, there, there are organizations that, that, that do it, like we do, for example. We, we, we worry about this, which is why I, I brought this up as a topic. Um, we we have our implementation to to solve these things which is um it it, it took quite some effort of, on, on our part to set up um but mm -hmm. but yes uh, the, uh, other organizations uh part and particularly when, when when you have when you're a small startup and uh and as you said uh Martis, like uh, devops is kind of a two-edged sword because uh, because if you take it by by its value, like as it's supposed to be, like this is supposed to, you're supposed to be enabling the developers to be able to deploy their applications by themselves. Uh, how do you encourage the developers to take a security-oriented stance around their own stuff? Um, in many cases, I find that it is that particularly in, in the mm -hmm. Kubernetes environment, you end up relying on, on, on your admission controllers a lot. Things like OPA, Gatekeeper, or, or, or Filecall for, uh, for auditing, uh, things like 
know, ICO security, etc. If if you know um, to, if if you know to install and configure those, right? Ex- is that a- exactly that, and, and that is the problem. Uh, I mean, it, 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 this is not something that is entry level friendly. And is go ahead, Brock. Well, consider also we're talking DevOps now. We've always talked about dev not being connected with QA and then not being connected with security. Now, DevOps, we essentially have two development groups now, one that that pushes out to the public immediately. And again, there's no, no discipline or tie-in to those checks and balances that QA and security provide. So unless security is inculcated or into the uh, culture or part of the agile team or whatever, you've got at least as big a hole in DevOps for security as you have in development itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and that is also the other side of the coin is that Security teams are, in in some cases, uh, which I, I know by by anecdote from second and third parties, uh, not very flexible. Like they 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 do their CIS benchmarks, and they want everything in in those benchmarks resolved, even if it doesn't make sense because it's not applicable to the context. Uh, conversely, if it's not part of a benchmark, or if it, or if the the scanning tool like uh, Mesos or or whatever doesn't pick it up, they don't look at it in in in, in some cases. Uh, I I find myself fortunate that that our security team is actually continually learning and and, and picking up tools and uh, and the. And actually interacting with 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 the with the dev teams, uh, but I, I I know from 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 people I've talked to that this is not always the case. Even in larger supposedly securities oriented companies, so so you end up having the problem of dev not knowing what security or or not knowing that that this should be looking at the security aspects of their own application. And you have the security team not being flexible enough to understand what dev is trying to implement uh, and knowing when their, when their current implementation or the, the current uh, uh, approach to security is insufficient. Yeah, uh, silos. And like you said, yep. Security is has grown in the same way that Dev has grown into these these uh, these expertise silos. So there are people who it's like, no, I'm red team. That's all I do. I'm red team, or no, I'm blue team. That's it. And then there are the other folks that have to provide all sorts of things. And yeah, it's. Uh, security needs to be cross functional in a lot of these teams. And in some ways, you think about security, um, and Klaus saying they're they're just not flexible. 
And that's kind of sort of part of the security mindful mindset too. I mean, they're cops or they're robbers, but they're cops. And, and that's kind of part of the whole mindset of inflexibility. No, we have to protect. This is the way to do it. I think some of the challenge that security faces nowadays is the some of the some of the vendor hype around certain things, whether it's a perimeter list and, and all these security type of buzzwords, and they're they're placed in a, a tough position where it's no, we don't need perimeter firewalls anymore, and now we can just use service mesh everywhere, and uh, so so I think it's the challenge with a lot of that maturing and obviously them continuing to, to try and evolve and learn new and different things. And, and I think one of the things I've identified is a, it's kind of the class's point is people talk about DevSecOps, but for me, there, there's also security for DevOps that, that often isn't talked about of how do you, how do you ensure your, your pipelines, not just leaking secrets and, and all the things that come along with trying to do CICD and Kubernetes and, and automation and all these components. Absolutely. So, so perhaps the follow-up question would be, what can we do to help remediate the issues that we that we're seeing? I think it's going to be more industry education. Uh, I, I think, unfortunately, a lot of it's just going to be the, the perceived pressure from the business to get things done as fast as possible and organizations continuing to just race forward with whatever they can get that works. I mean, the, the Kubernetes conversations I have, organizations are, are steadily talking about multiple Kubernetes clusters and spending applications across clusters and, and all these really advanced Kubernetes concepts and constructs. And, and, and I think there's just a, a need to go constantly faster and faster um, without always necessarily having to, to worry about or wanting to worry about the security aspect. And I think organizations have given the blessing to, to quote unquote DevOps teams to just go and, and do your thing without having to necessarily be tied to the, the legacy red tape that has always been in place. And, and I think this is where we need to go back to processes and lean processes and say agile. In development, there's a team that has folks that focus on various, that have expertise in specific areas that the team needs. Everybody does everything, but somebody really knows tests, somebody really knows. And so we need to put those teams back into, we need to migrate those teams into DevOps. So DevOps also has a decent process that's lean. So security and DevOps talk, if it's a daily stand-up meeting or whatever, uh, getting these teams formed so that even if it's just for DevOps to go ask security a question and having security not totally off the page because they've been following a little bit of what DevOps is doing, that would be a good start.
Damn, you're all silent for me. <laughs> Sorry, you, you, Sorry. You and, I, and, I, and I'm talking. I'm talking. And I'm talking to mute. Um, these are these are side effects of of the the velocity, right? Of of trying to move really fast and and not worrying about the risk of of doing things that aren't secure. But to me, it's not even secure. It's standard or patterned or practiced or stopping for. Is there a corporate governance approach for this? Or is you know, it, it feels like we're 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 so determined to to deliver that a lot of these, you know, they're not even checkboxes. They're real material components on how stuff gets built. We're just glossing by them. I mean, it, it's it's challenging. I know one of the things I've, I've thought about recently is just the idea of least privilege. I mean, you look across the various different policies that organizations are dealing with, whether it's secrets management or public cloud or, or various tooling and components, just trying to, to implement least privilege is a an incredibly mundane and time-consuming process. Yeah. Yeah, well, you're, to do it, you're going to have to break things, right? <laughs> Fundamentally. Um... And so the, the question back from the business becomes, well, is, is you spending a week to, to make sure all of our, our, our policies are least privileged? Is that worth it? Or is it crank out some more features or capabilities? So would it be easier if the systems did that? Like, should, should we be expecting systems to do a better job of that out of the box? Because, right, I mean, all this started with the opposite, which is out of the box, we want things to just work. You know, Helm, Chart, Foo should just work. That is not least privileged. That's the opposite. So, you know, are we are we starting with the wrong assumptions with this from a, just to make things more accessible? I think I know the answer, but um, I don't, I don't I mean, like I, the answer. I would say on, on that aspect, uh, documentation is, is a big culprit. Um, because, I mean, you, you look at the, uh, take Terraform, for example, you look, look at the providers and say, okay, I, I want to use the, uh, the uh, EKS provider to, to create a cluster. You, you, go, you go ahead and create a service account for, for, for your, your Terraform uh, continuous service. Uh, you try to create it, the, the cluster and you get a four or three or, or whatever. What do you do next? Well, you try to figure out what, what I am permissions that service account needs. But isn't this something that the provider should have documented already? Say, so in order to create these resources, you need these privileges. So... In the end, if you're under a time constraint, you end up just randomly throwing permissions at the service account until something sticks. Uh, and unless you are in the habit of cleaning up after yourself, or unless you're in the habit of going through your uh, IAM reports frequently and seeing which permissions are, are never used, and, and removing those retroactively, you end up leaving those in there. Um, so, so yeah, uh, 
I, I, I think documentation and education is, is still uh, still a, a big problem with this. Um, but uh, I, I'm sure other people have a, a different take on this as well. I, I'm not, I, I tend not to be as confident that education and documentation like result, like resolves itself um, into good outcomes. I'm, I'm just a pessimist that way. <laughs> I, um, the, I, I, I tend to, to fall towards, you know, safe, safe defaults. Um, ah. Yeah, man, I think but, it's going to be somewhere in the middle. Uh, so one of the things, well, I used to work at Puppet, and one of the things I often talked about was the, the the individual doing Puppet is now tasked with 30 other things. that learning Puppet, public cloud, Terraform, uh, Kubernetes, all these different things that have different constructs and, and different policies and, and IAM. Uh, and, and so it's challenging to always keep up with them. So I think some of it's going to have to be Vendors hopefully creating secure, sane defaults um, and, and the education piece, but also I think as an industry, we're gonna have to figure out some some model that makes it simpler. I know I've seen a few products that do the policy simulator thing. I think there's gotta be something that helps simplify what we're doing from a, a basic security or fundamental aspect. Hmm. I you I, I saying that what we're missing is opinionated, same default implementations. I think no, in, I in certain aspects, I, I think certain things can, you can have, have same defaults as, as an option or, or add on options should you, should you, should you select. Um, but obviously you're gonna get back into what's the definition of sane in terms of usability versus security is always gonna be that slippery slope. I, I would like to see us have better dev mode versus fraud mode flag, right? That um, I haven't seen this implemented. So I'm, I'm, I'm speaking about you know, something I, I would think through and actually think about how, how we would do it. Um, if you're in development mode to have a way to be like, yes, I'm in development mode, e ease restrictions, right? Put a, ideally put a clock on it and say, I'm in development mode for a week, two weeks, here you go. And then have systems revert back to safe uh, from that perspective. That's Which what is really, staging yeah. was supposed to be for in the test systems. Yeah. So you don't work on prod when you're in development mode, uh, but, uh, this is the whole shift left philosophy right now. Ops, DevOps, if you will, is learning that, gee, there's certain things that, that processes and tools that Dev has that we could really use. And the, the, there's also things that you just can't do in Dev. Yes. Or, or I mean, uh, let, let me rephrase something. That, you probably technically could do it in, in dev, but the effort required to do it in, in dev versus doing it in prod is so monumental that it outweighs the risk of actually doing it straight in prod. Are, are you thinking of, are you thinking of something specific? I'm just I'm curious. Kind of the least privileges thing where okay. 
ops has a lot more privilege than dev. And there's certain things you need to be able to expose it to the outside world that um, Dev doesn't have those privileges or access to. It's interesting. I usually think the opposite. I usually I usually think the Dev environments are are cranked way open and production environments are are cranked way down. Like the administrator might be able to bypass that, but I expect a production environment to have a lot fewer degrees of freedom. In a development environment. Like, Until I, like, you're in de charts, dev mode yeah. and you theoretically are consciously making that decision to open up some portion of it to see how things work because you're developing things and you think it's going to work. But but like you said, we need some way of flagging it and saying, we got to be more careful here, folks. And uh, in the dev environment, you don't have that access to, you're in a walled garden. So it's devs are walled garden and they get lots and lots of freedom. Ops yeah. is uh, the, the wild west, the dangerous uh, frontier. And DevOps needs some way to interact with the frontier while, no, while being a developer. In, interestingly, my, part of my concern here is that in both cases, things are invented. Like are not. Um, uh, let me let me see if I can spin this more. Care. There's a lot of effort put into onboarding for developers to make things easy for developers, right? Because if you don't, the developers never try it. It never goes to, never gets used. Um, I don't feel like the same effort is put on the production DevOps side, um, which is actually sort of an interesting thing. The the place where you're running production workloads doesn't have the same usability um, components that the development side. Maybe, and maybe that's so, sort of what we're talking around here is that there well, isn't an easy, go ahead. So it's a maturity, at least partially maturity issue and a culture issue. And until uh, ops matures DevOps to the point and puts into the culture those things uh that's that's why we have that's why we're having this discussion right now that it's ad hoc at the moment we don't have the processes we don't have the best practices yet i i i've been over you know my career i've just seen us not what what end up what ends up happening is, is that since Production ops are usually different enough, and there's no standard. No, there's very little standard tooling. It, I, this is ironic, right? De developers are typically have more common working patterns than than production users. Production users have perceptionally been scattered. So, writing stuff that handles production well typically doesn't has more trouble following standard patterns. Maybe I'm maybe I'm crazy. I'd love to be wrong, but. It, I, I think that it, it comes part, partially because of the, the bias against using beta technologies in, in production. And, and it's a justified bias, to be fair. Uh, but it also means that devs can adopt new tools a lot quicker because they don't have yeah. the inherent risk of breaking a production system, which means that your production system is held back 
several generations of technologies, even worse if, if you're dealing with government and like things like DOD certification and so on. Yeah. Well, you, you've also got the um, generalist versus specialist aspect in that ops has to accommodate anything devs come up with. And in most companies, devs are focused in a spe specific, essentially a vertical. But the ops person, the ops people, they if they leave that company, go to a different company, it's a different vertical oftentimes. And so the tools are going to be very different, but developer tools have all been developed for that specific vertical. And the ops guys don't have those tools developed. And in counterpoint, if you look at Netflix, they have an extremely rich tool set because they developed all of those production tools for their vertical. I, they, and they're not standardized from that perspective, right? Chaos Monkeys is, is somewhat is getting out there maybe as, some stand, as a practice, but not as a tool. I, I think they're standardized within Netflix. Uh, okay. uh, yeah. And so, and Spinnaker, for instance, is another one, more so than Chaos Monkey. Spinna, Spinnaker is, is gaining traction, but yeah. if you, and, and this is both an open source uh, process perspective and uh, the verticals and, and DevOps thing, is that for the longest time, people wanted to add features to Spinnaker and they couldn't because Netflix controlled the source code and right. Netflix was really leery about adding any of this stuff and weren't particularly friendly about uh, letting community provide. They're, they were willing to give it to the community, but they weren't willing to take it from the community. And I've seen similar things with um, what Netbox by Digital, you know, DigitalOcean's Netbox. These are these are production, you know, tools that are used in production data centers, and you know, accepting community patches to this stuff runs the risk that you know you're breaking your production stuff. You don't have an easy way to test it. Exactly. Part of the, which is part of the challenge. Here. Going also part back to the discussion yeah. of, of verticals. Um, I mean, yes, the verticals are different from from company to company. But also in, in many, many cases, um, the, the, the cost of adopting to, to a different type of vertical in order to um, bringing a new tool would not be so bad, but there's, um, there's a many, there's some, among many teams hesitancy to 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 pick up new tools mm -hmm. uh, and to and to to step away from the uh, called tried and true kind of thing. That, that doesn't it it's and it's not always justified. There is a lot of inertia there. Uh, there's a lot of fear about and about learning new tools, um, and it's sometimes hard to break. For good reason, right? You're going to take time. 
Well, yeah, for sure. And and in the ops world, you're you still have this uh, fighting fires, uh, running as fast as you can just to stand still, and all this other stuff. Taking the time to actually learn something deeply is really hard, and it's counter to the methods that you're employing for 80, 90% of your, your, your day at work. So that's the other thing. You have to hmm. totally change perspective, frame of mind, and focus to learn a new tool reasonably well. And if you're ops, if you don't know that tool tool well, you're going to get caught because somebody else is going to take advantage of uh, a niche that you're not aware of. This is the challenge of of that we're we're talking about that. The thing that's weird to me, though, is that when you look at that and you look at ops as a cross-team function, not just you know a dev you know a dev team vertical, then you know not just a single team extension. What we're what we're talking about to improve an organization, you have to have an ops team that's actually supporting multiple dev teams, right? Is is actually doing horizontal practice. Um, which means if you're if they can't absorb one, you know, if they're if it's hard to absorb new tools, then really the ops team is either going to be forcing everybody to work on what the ops team's preferred platforms are, or completely um, powerless, you know, sidelined. That's, like this is this is actually we talked we talked about this in the previous one, right? How do you, how do you we talked about platform engineering last week? And what we're, we're sort of, to me, back to, it's like, how do I have a company in which the ops team is actually improving operational capabilities, not just always being, facing whatever the developers threw into the mix? Yeah. And there, there's another thing also. Yeah. So we, 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 already, we already talked about the different velocities so between the dev team and, and the ops team and their capabilities in, in adopting new technologies. Uh, but there's another side effect also with that is that even if there is good communication on, on, the, on the dev team requests an MVP from the ops team and ops team goes and, and, and implements it, the, the, the difference in velocity itself means that by the time the ops team has implemented a solution as requested by the dev team, hmm. the dev team might have moved ahead from that and the goal, goalposts may have shifted. Yeah, and I think in some ways mentality it could be potentially slightly different. Uh, as an ops individual, I'm thinking about certain things as I build out that platform and MVP. Um, whereas a dev might just say, you know, what? well, I can just go grab this thing off the internet and like, why is it taking you so long? Yeah, and this is this is exactly what happened uh, a few years ago with IT departments, and that. IT departments weren't developing new apps or grabbing new apps and validating them off the internet fast enough. So all the devs were going out, getting themselves an AWS instance and making it happen. And yeah, you know, the mm -hmm. wild west. Shadow IT. Yep. 
And now we're talking shadow ops. Yeah, and and speaking personally as a, a an ops individual, unfortunately, the business to a degree has empowered that um, with the the yep. desire to get things cranked away. And so, as an ops individual, you're, you're stuck in this weird position of basically the business has chosen the developer over the ops individual, and the developer is not doing it as secure as they should be doing it. Yeah, yeah. Especially if, if the, the developer writes a proof of concept and, and then the manager takes that and then takes <laughs> to the sales team and says, go ahead and ship it, sell it, sell it. Like, and it, it's not ready yet, but it works. It works for us. It's code, uh, not product. And, and uh, the sales team don't care about product. They just want code that works and ship it. Yep. And that's where, again, second-class citizens everybody other than devs are second-class citizens in most companies. That's also why digitalization is failing and uh, pulling back out of the cloud is going to happen because the there's too many people that, that put it all on dev and don't give ops the, the support and the authority they need to protect the company and to provide uh, huh. the quality product that uh, the customers really want, even though dev is putting all those features in, quality or user experience or whatever might not be there. And it's, it's now the gatekeeper is, is ops instead of QA. But I'm, I'm going to bring this full circle back to supply chain. Because I, I don't think what we just described here, while I, I agree with you, is sustainable that that yep that you know companies need to have a degree of control over their software supply chains because not knowing makes them incredibly vulnerable um and, and maybe this is the hook back to establish some order but um if people are just throwing whatever they want up there you know, we, we used to just be concerned because you had so many different, you had no way of controlling it. You didn't know, you know, skill sets, problems, all this stuff. Now we've actually got concerns of, you know, you did what? It's, you know, are you checking the sources? Do you know that it's, you know, not corrupted? Do you know that you have actually licensed to it? Um, none of this is new. It's, this is yeah, not new. Unfortunately, I think I think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. One of the things I've mm -hmm. thought about lately is obviously the proliferation of infrastructure as code. But if you take a look at, at a, a developer or a DevOps engineer's laptop from a, a Git code repository standpoint, as, a, as an attacker, that's the place I want to go. I, I want to yeah. see what, what's all in your infrastructure as code. I want to make a, a, a seemingly un, insignificant change that may not be open up the all the ports, it might just be open up to the, these IP addresses or open up to this IP addresses, IP address. And, and suddenly something has slipped in that isn't detected by what we think as the, the malicious scanners. Um, and, and all of a sudden now things are completely open in the sense that somebody can just slip right in. Uh, and unfortunately, I don't think it's going to get any better until um, continuous maintenance stops becoming a second-class citizen. Uh, 
Yes. I, I regret that that is going to be a very, very hard sell because it's not a money maker. It's a money sink. And it's like what, what was happening with all the ransomware. Instead of making the maintenance first-class citizens, the insurance companies just said, well, it's a cost of doing business. Exactly. Like it, it, if, if it costs you, I don't know, million dollars a year to to uh, to keep rigorous uh, maintenance of, of of your dependencies and, and that is a, a very very low number that I'm putting there so I'm just throwing one out there but if it costs you a million dollars a year to maintain it but you get a a fine of half a million for for a, for a breach. What is the incentive to to fix your things? And Even if the fine is three millions, that, that means that you can operate for three years without hardening your system and still break even. Right. It's it's the auto industry uh, recall issue, but. It's the yep. insurance, mm. the insurance companies and whatnot are making it worse because whether your system is very secure or not, you still have to pay the same amount of insurance as the people with wide open systems. And that's not entirely true. But, a, but the insurance is a known cost of doing business, whereas yes. the cost of continuous maintenance. Well, we don't know because that changes with people and salaries and, and systems and stuff like that. So it's easy to quantify the cost of insurance. It's not easy to quantify the cost of continuous maintenance. And it, it gets compounded too if the, if the board responds to the shareholders who want short-term profit versus... Uh, the team that's in it for the long term. <sighs> yeah. So basically, we're just going to keep building houses of cards. <laughs> yep, pretty much. <laughs> we're a collection of Debbie Downers here, but uh... Uh, no, as this is this is. It, I mean, that's our our conversation about supply chains never got past. We're not securing things, which to me is like, you know. That's that's reasonable to say. I'm not I'm, I'm not going to talk about, you know, the small fires until the big fires are out. So. And, and so I think what we'll see with the supply chain stuff is all these corporate you know, C-suite folks and whatnot are going to have the insurance companies say, well, you need supply chain control. And so the company's going to go to their their. Uh, dev teams, not their ops teams, their dev teams, and say, how do we do uh, do this, make it happen? And the dev teams are going to pick some software, open source or whatever, that supposedly tracks the supply chain, uh, puts it in place, makes the ops folks use it, uh, and it'll just sit there uh, logging stuff. And the companies can tell their insurance companies, yep, we got we're we're there. Reduce our insurance rates, and DevOps has to just you know, deal with yet another piece of software 
without any real regards to whether they it's useful or not and how they use it. Oh, I, I, you you give the dev teams way too much credit. I, I, I'm, af I'm afraid. I think that they're just going to say, "Oh yeah, we're we're, we're, lo we're locking the, the dependency versions on on, on our on, on our packages." Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you mean they're not going to grab the open source project that does it? No, that's going to fall on on onto onto the the, the DevOps uh, team to to go on and, and actually say, well, now that you're locking the, the, the versions, let's go on and, and, and do some scanning. Uh, and, and, and that's why DevOps keeps getting uh, fouled under the money sync uh, umbrella. Like it, right, uh, because we're, it we're costs that expense. More to, they're dealing with devs' technical debt. Yep. <laughs> All right. But and yeah, it's going to be just are, a checkbox for the C-suite. We we are over, and uh, whoever is, if anybody's listening to this, <laughs> go grab a, a strong drink or something to make yourself feel better. Reason it's important to understand where we are. <coughs> well, all right, everybody. I I, I actually like this. I, I know it feels like we've been, been negative and talking about this as if there's no hope. I actually. I think we're being pragmatic about where it is and, and how to start. Because we yeah, and so the, the real fixed. key is for, for DevOps that care, if you care, if you're not burned out, it's this is what the situation is. How do you make the best of it so that uh, you get to do your work in a reasonable fashion and you're protecting co company assets if you care about company assets? <laughs> So yeah, got to know where you're starting from to actually make a difference. <sighs> fun times. Fun, definitely fun times. All right, everybody. Talk to you all Thursday. Cheers. Yeah, thanks. Bye. Thanks. <laughs>
you know, laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.